Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Well, Adam... It's a, a great pleasure to have you on the podcast today, my friend. Thanks for joining us uh, in sunny San Francisco. We appreciate your, uh, your participation here. We're excited to have you on. If you could give us kind of just some, some background on, on yourself, your VC career, kind of just talk me through what the journey's been. That'd be wonderful. Yes. Great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Adam Dugale. I'm a partner at True Ventures. Uh, True Ventures is an early stage venture capital firm based in San Francisco. Uh, we invest in brilliant people who bring ideas that matter to life. Um, some of our better known investments include companies like uh, HashiCorp, Duo Security, uh, Ring, and Peloton. Um, I spent the summer prior to graduation with the True Ventures portfolio company called Stock Solutions uh, and then joined the firm as the first junior hire uh, in June of 2010. Uh, no official job title or job description, uh, but with a plan we'd figure out together. Um, so that was 10 years ago and it's been a great period of time for uh, the firm and me. Super. So how, how did you become interested in venture, Adam, and what kind of sparked this curiosity for the, for the startup ecosystem here? So uh, I've got a weird path into uh, technology and venture capital. Um, in high school, I was actually in a ska band. Um, you can no longer find our videos online, thank goodness. Um, but uh, we, we became uh, sort of a big deal in kind of the Southeast United States. Um, we started doing kind of small tours. Uh, we opened up our own little venue. Um, and, uh, in the back, we started recording ourselves and friends. And at the time we didn't really have a lot of money. And so we couldn't put out CDs, but we were able to record ourselves for free. And so I said, Hey, let's put some, let's put some of these records online. And just so we can use that to tour more, um, some friends band saw that and they asked to do the same. Uh, then we had people reach out to us and say, Hey, your music's great. Could we you know, send you some money? And we said, sure. And so we put up a PayPal link. And so. Um, you know, on the back of that, you know, kind of, we kind of put a name on it and called it Perfect Wave Records, um, but kind of put together this idea of kind of a donation-based record label where um, we worked with you know, bands, recorded them for free, and then kind of worked together to build uh, a business with them. And so for me, as you know, a high school student, I was always very, I was, always, I was blown away by the fact that like on no money and, and very little sense, um, you know, we could put together this really interesting business. And so I, when I went to university, uh, University of Florida, um, I was really into the intersection of kind of technology and business. And so I uh, spent a bunch of my time kind of focused on research within that, uh, really at the intersection of technology and business, um, culminating in a class that I kind of helped, I helped create and teach called Digital Frontiers, which was all about um, how the internet affected business. And so uh, the summer before I graduated, I was spending, I was doing some consulting work really around kind of direct-to-consumer marketing or using the internet for kind of, you know, customer acquisition. Um, and ended up at a true ventures portfolio company, B Stock Solutions. Um, I met the I kind of met the team at the time. I didn't. I was still living in Gainesville, Florida. I was teaching this class. I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do after college. Um, but True Ventures at the time was kind of a small, uh, small new firm. Had just raised their second fund. I really liked the team. I got to know them over the course of the summer. Uh, and at the end of the summer, they they offered me a job. I said, Hey, 
we like you. We never really wanted to hire a junior investment uh, team member, but we think you're great. Um, come join and we'll, we'll figure it out together. Uh, and so that was, uh, so I said, <laughs> I said yes. Uh, and it's been a great 10 years. Um, and you know, joining, uh, uh, joining a, a new venture fund early is a great learning experience. And I really got to learn the entire business of venture from kind of my partners who've been great mentors to me. That's a t- terrific background and a, a great foray to venture there, Adam. Um, you, you've had a, a storied run at True Ventures there, obviously, with some, some great wins. Can you, can you talk about maybe just how True kind of got into the, the healthcare life sciences realm of things? I know you all didn't really start out there. What kind of sparked, uh, sparked that interest? Yeah, so, um, so, True, so True raised Fund 1 in 2006. And if you kind of think back to that period of time, it was getting a lot less expensive to start a new company. Um, things like open source infrastructure services and social media let founders you know, test and launch a new idea on far fewer dollars. Um, but there wasn't a ton of seed-focused venture capital. Uh, it's very different from right now. Um, so if you're a founder, you could raise 250K from you know, a, group, a, a meaningful group of angels, or you'd really need to go to Sand Hill Road to raise you know, five plus million dollars to get started. And so you know, the beginning of True is really focused on this gap to fund a new type of company which was really started by a different type of founder who was more product oriented. So either an engineer or a product leader um, and really had a different type of risk profile. So the company would raise less initial capital, but it ended up taking more risk on market size, timing and product execution. And so if you look at the earliest investments of True, there are companies like Automatic, which is WordPress, uh, Goodreads, Mebo. You know, they were led by product center founders who didn't need a lot of capital to get started or started without raising any capital. Um, but it wasn't very clear how their business, how their business would become. Um, but because the firm had smaller funds and invested fewer initial dollars, take those types of risks. And so while the first set of investments were in consumer media, you know, the business model was always focused on following the best founders to where they were spending time and really being open to how to, uh, and really being open to investing in new markets that would look weird or small today, but could be, you know, large and impactful over time. And so if you look kind of the history of the portfolio in, in true, you know, in fund one, we're starting to go from consumer and media into enterprise software. And fund two, we're investing in infrastructure and consumer hardware companies. And by fund three, we made our first investments in healthcare, life science, and consumer products. You know, never a top-down, here's how we should think about allocating capital and these are trends. It was very much driven by, you know, founders and following them where they're spending time and tinkering on interesting things and just saying, you know, this is a great mission-driven founder. And if it works, it's a big deal. So how did this all kind of come together in life sciences. You, you knew you were kind of thinking about following this pathway and kind of being open to these incredible founders, as you mentioned, but just when did it click? What was the first one? Kind of how did things come together? Yeah, so as you hear about investments that we make, they all kind of have the same story, which I think is, uh, which is good. The, you know, we very much focus on the ingredients. So, you know, our first life science investment, and you will not see this, but I'm doing my fingers and Speaking quotes. of the ingredients, I, I have my, my, my story on that. Um, I always joke that startups aren't recipes, but I prefer a well-stocked pantry. I and, like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it's the, the people at the helm, the master chefs that really make the business happen and pull it all together. I love it. Yeah, so our, so our first investment in the space is a company called Moleculo. And so it was a spin out of the, his lab, you know, it, the company enabled, you know, long read sequencing on existing Illumina hardware using a combination of software and biology. So at the time we hadn't yet made an investment in a company that used a wet lab. And so we had questions about whether or not this is the type of investment that it sense for, for us as a firm. Um, and, but, you know, as a firm, we really sit down and, and when we make investment decisions, we really focus on the ingredients of a good potential investment. And so, you know, think about it here, like the company is introduced to us by a founder we had previously funded and trusted. You know, had low initial capital needs, 
It had really high and differentiated founder market fit. And there was lots of risk around like market size, timing, product execution. Like what did it mean to build a business that like sold reagents and sequencing services versus like, you know, put things in a box. Um, but like if it worked, their ambition was, was to be the operating system for, um, for this new and growing market. And so, you know, so the, it was kind of a different type of risk reward trade than I would say a traditional life science investment that probably would not have been a fit for us. And so, and to be specific, like on less than a million dollars of cap paying capital, the company had already had launched product in market with customers. Um, and, you know, it would be separate and distinct from something like a Pacific Biosciences, which raised, you know, tens of millions before we were able to launch their product in the market. And so, so we invested uh, right around public launch. The company was relatively quickly acquired by Illumina. And so it was a small early win for us, but really opened our eyes to the potential of companies leveraging biology, software, and automation in new ways but really with different business models, which meant the capital needs up front would change. That's fascinating. So when you identify kind of these investment opportunities, where do you think kind of things particularly work well? For us, it always starts with founding team and founder market fit. And so usually that involves multidisciplinary backgrounds uh, and then teams with cross-discipline expertise. So in the molecular example above, you know, both founders were dual PhDs in biology and computer software. So this gave them a very different perspective on how to tackle the problem they wanted to solve. You know, then we say, let's look for markets that are smaller malformed today, uh, but could become large if the company is successful. And so you know, two recent examples in our portfolio, uh, you know, one is called Membio. It's biomanufacturing red blood cells outside the human body. The market for biologically manufactured red blood cells today is quite small, but you know, if they're right, you know, the market for this product in therapeutic and then in general, uh, transfusion is a quite large and could be a big deal in the world, both in terms of enterprise value and impact on patients. Um, you know, another example is a company, Filtracine. It's a spin out of um, Mike Snyder's lab at Stanford. It's developing a targeted nutrient therapy deprivation product for cancer management and treatment. Um, again, you know, using, can using food to treat cancer is a big, ambitious idea. If it's successful today, the market for this type of particular therapy is quite small. And so, you know, for us, we think about, hey, this is a really special team that has a really different view on a market in a market that does not exist today. But if they're right, they can be the leader in this market. And they're, and they're really approaching it from a more of the science and biology is known. And it's really about engineering and product risk at this point. Let's double click there for a second. Kind of talk to me about medical food. Uh, this has been something kind of in around the valley that I feel like I've been hearing more and more and more over the years. Uh, and kind of goes in tangent to what you're you're saying before. You're investing very early small markets. It can be impactful and kind of take a take a swing at a at a large industry here. Uh, talk to me kind of about some of those markets, maybe where you've backed a company of kind of this make and mold persona in the past, and then why do you see medical food perhaps as a uh, fitting in that category as well? So just to take one step back, so I think um, if you look at our model, our investment model, we say great. Let's focus on founder market fit. Let's be aligned with the founders. Let's reduce initial capital risk. And then let's maximize risk around the edges of market size, market timing, and product execution. That um, those overlying um, beliefs or viewpoints can be applied to any company. And then you have to say, all right, well, like what are the company, what, is the, what are the underlying elements for this particular company we're gonna go look at? Uh, so yeah, so I'll use a specific, a specific example with Pendulum Therapeutics, uh, formerly known as Whole Biome. 
Um, so a pendulum, we developed the first and only medical probiotic clinically shown to lower A1C and blood glucose. So it's the product with the performance of a therapeutic, but the safety profile of food. You know, the founding team previously worked together at Pacific Biosciences, and we're one of the first groups to study the gut microbiome using long-read sequencing. And so based on that data set from early work with the Mayo Clinic, the company's identify, able to identify the specific strains of bacteria found in healthy human guts. In parallel, we developed a proprietary method to manufacture these specific bacteria, and then ran multiple clinical trials in our first indication to validate efficacy, and started selling the product earlier this year. We developed the initial product and launched the first human trial on less than 10 million of paid in capital, uh, which is wild to me. If you think what's enabled that, it's many of the same things that let consumer, internet, and media companies also launch with smaller upfront investments. You know, at, at some level, it's things like shared office space and access to shared equipment. You know, the company worked out of QB3 through its Series B financing, things like open source software and infrastructure services, which let the company run large-scale data processing early, um, you know, and e-commerce and social distribution channels, which changed the initial upfront cost for sales and marketing. Um, you know, the market for a medical probiotic in this particular disease indication is small today, but the potential impact and revenue scale of a product with this type of safety and efficacy profile is meaningful. Um, you know, in particular, you know, the medical food path is interesting in a way that uh, it's, it's an alternative regulatory path that really goes into taking a different type of product and market risk. So rather than saying, hey, we're gonna have a regulated therapeutic that is reimbursed and go down that path, which is, which is known, would say, hey, we have a different safety profile um, but we still have efficacy uh, and we can get to the human trials sooner is there, and we think there's consumer demand um, unrelated to being prescribed by a doctor. And so it's a combination, it's a, different, it's a different approach to building a business that takes a different approach to how you think about risk. Because we're raising less capital, we're able to take a different profile of um, market size risk, which I would say is taking a different approach to regulatory and go to market than traditional therapeutics. That's fascinating, Adam. Um, and I think a, a tangent here for us at Alix Ventures, um, I think our last three investments kind of fall in that similar category as well of just backing incredible founders um, in kind of small, nascent, upcoming markets with kind of a, a key insight. Um, particularly our, our last investment company called Elegant uh, that's doing DNA writing, um, really kind of enabling the, the symbiotic revolution there. We, we feel like what they're doing um, is tiny infant, infinitesimal market now, but when they kind of unlock this key innovation of being able to kind of do desktop synthesis, um, what that will enable for R&D, very exciting. Also looking at circularis, kind of that category as well. Gene therapy market, very small, um, but growing, growing quickly. I think kind of you look at some of the key core pillars of our last few investments. It's been in, um, organoids actually been in, Symbio been in gene therapy, all are kind of up and coming more kind of deep techish fields, but finding kind of quirky founders, um, our, our last, <laughs> I'd say fortunate enough to have our last kind of three companies, uh, the founders being kind of early employees, if not founders of unicorn, IRB, uh, Natera, Freenome, uh, and Vitae kind of looking at folks who've had prior su successful track records in the space and, seeing how they're now poising those insights from uh, prior successes into kind of now being the early pioneers in up and coming markets, kind of like you mentioned, backing founders first and knowing kind of that they have the game plan in themselves to take things to the finish line. I think there's an interesting aside that we can go down, which is like, I had an email this morning about, you know, how we invest in frontier technology. And anytime someone talks about frontier technology, I feel like it's a dodge. So my issue is, I think at the core, venture capital is this amazing 
it's an amazing tool for the right types of companies. You think about like what we do, what we should aspire to do best is we should find great people who have, have new technology approaches that if they're right, gives them the ability to open up a new market and really build a different type of business model. And, but the technology is the driver of outsized business performance. And I think it's important anytime you're investing kind of a new undefined market is to have an understanding of where you're headed directionally and why the science or technology actually drives better business outcome. And so, you know, to tie it back to the pendulum example, you know, because we have a product that, you know, works and has this incredible safety profile, we think, you know, yeah, and that's generally regarded as, as safe, right? Kind of that pathway to the FDA, if I'm correct. Yeah. And we've now run trials and because, you know, they're naturally grown bacteria that we, we, we identify that live in healthy people's guts, like it's, it's, it's known safe. And I would say what's most compelling to me on the other side is like people like the product, people keep using the product. So they want to buy the product. They'll then retain and our retention numbers are incredible. They then tell their friends, which then drives down our cost, cost of customer acquisition. And so ultimately have this business that is, I know, highly predictable cash flows, uh, over a long period of time with low customer acquisition costs and low churn. Like we do the science to support building a great consumer product that impacts people's lives, but you need to know where you're headed in terms of building a really great, valuable long-term business, which I think is why, you know, I don't like to define anything we do as frontier tech. I like to define it as like, we're investing in great people opening up new markets, but ultimately we're building a different type of business, often at the intersection of two, you know, unrelated fields, which I think is where I get most excited. You know, Pendulum is ultimately the intersection of best of what we've learned around consumer product and direct-to-consumer business building in this current world and best of, um, you know, rational drug design using software. That's fascinating. I hadn't come around and thought about it for how you're kind of picking these kind of first go-to-market indications and seeing this as a consumer company in the sense that it's like reoccurring high retention, but based like on a biological need. Yes. It's fun. I have the coolest job, man. I love it. We get to, like, we get to work with some of the coolest founders and we're doing important things. Like, I don't know, I get, I get giddy when I think about some of the stuff we're doing and how it has the ability to impact people's lives. It's, it's, it's truly remarkable. And I think you probably get this too. Like you funded this person in the beginning and they're like, I'm going to go do this crazy thing. And you're like, that seems kind of crazy, but like, let's go do it together. And then like it works. And so at some level when we funded Pendulum as an example, like it was three individuals who came out of PacBio who were like, we are really great at long read sequencing. We're gonna go make the neck, we're gonna make, go make medical probiotics that work and drive clinical outcomes. And at the time, we did not know that we were gonna to have to become a manufacturing company. We did not know we were gonna to have to become a clinical testing company. We did not know we were gonna to have to be an e-commerce company, but we did all that. And now we have customers who use the product and have used the product for many months now. Like the feedback is incredibly positive where they won't get a like, we have to exist in the world for them because they love it so much. And I think that, that to me is like the coolest part is to see the founder's vision come to life and really change people's lives. Like that is, it's magical. At the end of the day, we get to, we get to impact patients in life sciences and, and that's, the, that's the name of the game. And to do the crazy, unexpected, heroic journey in that process just makes it all the while more I'm curious though, but as you're thinking about this and as you just talked about Pendulum, um, I mean, a, a lot of, quite frankly, like unpredictable uh, circumstances ahead. Just when you're going on something that's just so disruptive and new, you, you, you run down a path that sometimes you're building as you're going. How do you think about financing these companies just out of curiosity? Um, do you have like a, a mental model 
for like a playbook for how you've thought about kind of putting money where your mouth is for lack of better words? Um, so there's probably two answers to that question. So first our fund model at the initial check is based on a, a high acceptance of failure. And I would say high acceptance of, of loss. And so, and I wouldn't say it's failure. Like um, what we say to the founders is like, listen, you're, you're incredibly amazing in the world. It is, it is irrational for you to start a company except you believe this thing should exist and you see this crazy thing and that's why you want to go do it. Um, and we want to be aligned with you. And so we will write checks of one to 3 million, which is less than 1% of our you know, very big seed funds. We tend to own 20 to 25% with the idea that, so if it doesn't work, which happens you know, 40% of the time out of the gate, it's totally okay for us. And what we tell founders is, um, it, it, let's, let's decide together it works. Let's like set the milestones to understand like if it's worth your time or our capital. Um, and if it doesn't work, that's totally okay. And in parallel, we've now backed 26 people twice. We've backed eight people three times. We, we kind of collectively, hey, this one isn't working. Let's try something else. Um, and then if it does work, have really large pools of capital to continue to scale the business. And so, um, you know, our sixth fund is $350 million. Uh, we now have three select funds, which are able to invest in our best performing companies over time. And so, you know, though we may start with a small individual check and in a company like a ring or a Peloton, we're investing small amounts over time, we've invested 50, $60 million. And so, um, you know, in the beginning, it's very much like, Hey, let's find great people and let's make sure on that first check, we can get to a meaningful milestone you know, in the consumer and enterprise world, that's let's launch and get some paying customers. Um, in some of this stuff around consumer products, it's, hey, can we launch a version? Hey, can we test the product? Can we get to clinical endpoints? Like we sit, spend a lot of time pre-investment really being aligned with the founders on like, what do we need to prove that if we prove it, we know there's a big business here. Because um, that's really what matters. It's not like, is this like an okay business? Like we're going to go for it. It's mapping kind of the value inflections. Gotcha. Right. And then if it does work, really um, having worked with a number of groups that, uh, you know, we think are great and aligned with. And I think, um, you know, I think about a lot, like when you're finding these types of things, you really want great co-investment partners. And we've worked now with a large number of groups. And so really getting them involved early um, because it does, it will take capital to scale. Um, and then, but then at a certain point it flips and everyone's like, oh, what a great business. And so you just kind of have to get to that point where everyone's like, oh, that's an amazing business. And then it kind of flips over. Um, but there is, there's an upfront work to make sure you, that you really want to get into it. So it helps us that we have large pools of capital um, and a very deliberate model on let's go take a lot of risk early and, and be okay with figuring out whether or not it's a good idea. Terrific framework in thinking about that. And you, you touched on something towards the end of that that I haven't heard a lot of VCs maybe been as verbose about. What do you look for in co-investors, Adam? Kind of, can, you, can you talk to me if you're comfortable about kind of how do you build a syndicate? Yeah, so... So a couple threads. The way we pitch to founders is we say, listen, uh, at Seed, uh, many of the companies we're funding, um, you know, part of the benefit of our size is we say to founders that come to us, you have this crazy idea, this crazy ambitious vision. Um, we're in. Don't worry about raising additional capital. Like you need to raise one to three million, consider the round done. And, and that gives them certainty and comfort and then has psychological safety. Then what we say to them is like, listen, we don't need to take the whole round and we really want to help you build the best group of people around you. So think about angels or funds that you'd want to bring in with you and let's build kind of a group together that lets you go and build an awesome company. Um, you know, our economic model still needs to work, but there's definitely space to bring others and we bring groups like you or um, Boom VC or others in a, with us at that kind of earliest stage because like uh, other groups can help and we want the founder to you know, the founder's company at that point, we really want to help them build the best syndicate for long success. 
then as we think about scaling, you know, part, a, a big piece is like helping the founder meet great investors who are values aligned, who have, you know, continued access to capital. Um, as, as you guys know, and, uh, like these are never quite a straight line. And if you're doing a hard software consumer product company, there's a lot of things that can go wrong uh, each month. And so um, having individual investors who are known to be good actors who then have deep pockets and are patient capital, I think is super, super important. And so we optimize to work with groups like that, that we've worked with before, um, that we can kind of bring in and, and over time continue to add investors who, um, you know, again, believe in the vision, who are values aligned and uh, will have the ability to continue to support the company through its entire life cycle because, um, you know, these ambitious types of ideas will require lots of downstream. We'll have the benefit of being able to use downstream capital as it's working to scale even faster. So we look for great people who are values aligned and um, you know, buy into the vision and want to support you know, the long-term success of the company. And I imagine as well, know that it's not a straight line, they're patient capital and uh, through the good times and the bad times in the trenches with founders, most importantly. Great. Um, so, so Adam, you've, you've talked a lot about True's founder focus and how founders play a big part in your mental model, particularly for first-time technical founders. Um, what do you look for in terms of their capacity to grow into these successful entrepreneurs with uh, many different roles in a company? Yeah, so this, so um, I think this is actually one of my favorite mispricing of risks in the market, um, especially with our particular type of company. And so like if you're an investor investing, you know, $10 million plus in a company going after a known market with a known business model, it is less risky to back, you know, a business leader who has done it before and maybe multiple times. And so if you think though about the startups we're funding that are in a new emerging markets and you likely leveraging kind of new and different business models that haven't been used before, um, I think it creates this opportunity for a new type of founder um, uh, in, in our old software parlance, I would say closer to the metal. Um, but the idea being that, um, you know, in 06 to 10, it was backing product leaders and engineers instead of MBAs. Um, and today I think that's very much backing kind of the scientists. And so, uh, we think a lot about kind of mission driven, you know, technical founders. I talked earlier about kind of multidisciplinary backgrounds and then cross dis cross discipline understanding across the team, um, which then leads to kind of these unique and differentiated insights around product. Um, and then have the ability to understand how unique elements of the underlying science open up different types of business models. You know, I mentioned, you know, pendulum therapeutics and filtering before, you know, both you kind of use this unique safety profile to take a different approach to regulatory and distribution than kind of, I would say, small molecule, um, you know, more traditional therapeutic competitors in the same category. Um, you know, two other examples, because I think this is, this to me is like the most important topic. Um, so one example, um, Brendan Frey is the founder and CEO of a company called Deep Genomics. Um, you know, Brendan was a student of Jeff Hinton at University of Toronto uh, and was one of the earliest, if not the earliest individual to start applying deep learning techniques to the analysis of human genetic code. So when he said, hey, I want to go start a company to develop genetic medicines, um, there's, they're using software. There's probably no one in the world who's like, thought about this and worked this problem as long as him. He has never run a company before, and so there will be work to kind of have the, that as a growth edge on how do you hire, how do you bring in other things around it. Um, but from a pure, how to understand the power of the technology and how that can turn into technology, uh, product, and business model, I think you, can't, you could not find someone else in the world to ever replace that uh, with him. Another you know, example, uh, Larry Weiss is the founder of a company called Symbiome. 
Um, you know, Larry was a medical doctor who left the practice of medicine to build consumer products uh, with health as a primary design parameter, uh, initially with IDEO. Um, you know, he's, today, he's already built two first-in-class consumer products, uh, first at CleanWell and Mother Dirt. You know, the vision at Symbio is to create products that consumers love and that will help re restore ancestral elements of health. Uh, and so there's uh, very few people in the world who, are, who have thought about consumer products um, and health in the same way as Larry. And so if someone wants to go tackle this problem, um, you know, Larry's probably best situated to go and do it. And that type of edge in the founder and the earliest stages um, is something that you can't, you can't value it. Like it's just, that's the thing we look for. And it's the thing that leads to incredible insight in these small, weird, new early markets that ultimately leads to big, important, valuable companies that change people's lives. Can you tell us about kind of uh, opportunities in, in, in Symbio, kind of like past therapy? Yeah, so, um, so one of our earliest investments in this space after Moleculo uh, is, a, is a company called Zymergen, uh, where we were one of the first investors in the initial seed round. You know, the Zymergen team really showed us how biology, machine learning, and automation could open up markets far beyond healthcare for these types of uh, technology and products. You know, one example, you know, the, the team there developed adhesives using biological derivatives that are similar to those naturally made by muscles, uh, which is then significantly better at bonding strength than other adhesives on the market today. Um, you know, so in our portfolio today, we've already made investments in companies where you're imagining large existing markets from B2B materials to clothing to consumer staples to food. You know, you know, there's tremendous opportunity right now for companies building better performing products using biology, going beyond kind of the traditional diagnostics and therapeutics market. Um, and we think we're super early in this shift. Um, and the size of all these markets is really large in the kind of existing way today. Um, you know, trillions of dollars in revenue each year, touching every person on earth multiple times a day. Uh, so I guess you, you've talked about a couple of companies, maybe go into a little more depth about a couple of these investments you've made in the space. And I think why you think they're so exciting. Yeah. So, uh, I'll talk about a market cause I think it's fun to talk about it that way. So, um, you know, one market that we think a lot of is, is food. So, um, as our population grows in size and income, we will increasingly need to access large amounts of high quality, healthy food, especially proteins. And so one way this will happen is through the creation of new, great tasting plant-based alternatives to meat. Um, and so here we're investors in a company called Prime Roots. Uh, it was a platform technology company. You know, they started with a plant-based salmon burger, but has used their technology to develop other products that resemble all other protein types, including chicken, beef, pork, tuna. The company grew out of a passionate community the founders initially developed online, uh, which allowed them to better understand the types of products that their consumers really want and develop proprietary recipes that taste great in addition to being healthy and better for the environment. And another fun aside there is like, while most of their early adopters were uh, vegans or vegetarians, most of their newest customers are individuals who just want to eat less meat. Another way we'll be able to increase access to nutritious, sustainably produced food is by using cellular agriculture. Uh, another example here, an example here is uh, Fork and Good, which is growing real great tasting animal protein that people want but with a safer supply chain and far lower environmental impact. Um, so to tie this back to the, you know, the beginning here, you know, um, you know, both companies leveraging technology to develop new, better performing products that couldn't exist before in large existing markets. Um, you know, to put numbers on it, global protein is a true $2 trillion market today. Um, but each particular segment they play in is quite small. So the plant-based market is $3 billion today. The cell-based market doesn't exist yet. So there's a lot of room for each of these individual companies to grow as the markets they are leading also grow to kind of tackle the existing traditional market. 
can you talk about kind of some of the trends of past maybe as you've seen these kind of opportunities growing and where some spaces maybe you were lesser comfortable making the best of it in and kind of why or where maybe spaces that you're not excited about or not comfortable in and haven't maybe as you're kind of looking at the true thesis why did you maybe avoid one space that i'm just helping us maybe crystallize kind of where your lens is so we're not top-down market investors but rather people up investors and so i don't have a you know great direct answer for this question or where we'll be in 20 years because this is not the way we think about the world like great people enabled by technology who have ambitious ideas and want to change the world can do a lot on small amounts of capital. And so, um, you know, as I look forward, uh, I don't know what kind of companies will invest in the future, but it's, it's amazing to see the incredible impact of these creative founders building new pr products. Um, and, and candidly, I'm stoked. And so I, I learned my lesson, which is I should not bet against the power of creative founders and where technology will let us innovate because I think we're at an amazing time to be doing what we're doing and then also starting companies in the space. I, I love that answer, Adam, I gotta say, and I love the people part of that. And I wanna dive in there maybe a little more. You touched on this briefly, how you kind of weren't backing MBAs in years past, but kind of more like the engineers and product leaders. And now you kind of think that's scientists in the realm of things there as well that you're backing. Can you touch on where you think kind of the next generation tinkers is going as you're calling it and where you think kind of uh you're, where are you finding these founders how are things coming to you and where do you see those founders maybe evolving into what are some of the personas that you kind of look for in the next generation of founders so a couple a couple different answers um you know for us the best source of new investments is from existing founders we've already backed um, if i actually think about our best performing investments you know, they've either been close relationships with founders we already backed, like the founder of Fitbit came to us from the founder of Nebo, the founder of Ring came to us from the founder of Automatic, uh, the founder of HashiCorp came from us from the founder of Keep. And so these are high quality introductions from people we know who often say, hey, I have this, this friend or someone I've worked with before who's incredibly high quality. They're doing something a little bit weird, but I think you should talk to them. Like that is our best source of new investments. And we often find ourselves in these kind of weird interesting spaces early. Um, because we've kind of now set ourselves up to be kind of doing the weird and interesting things and been in a place known for kind of psychological safety for that particular type of founder. I think that's something that the Valley is starting to get known for. How do you kind of craft that atmosphere? It's hard. I guess it's hard is the short answer. But if you think about the found, like if you're a founder, like you, uh, you probably have a set of beliefs about how the you see it and no one else does. And it has to be incredibly frustrating and scary. Um, and at some level, um, having someone who says, Hey, I believe in you, let's go build this thing together is step one. You know, step two is, especially at the early stages, releasing them a little bit of fear of failure, which is, Hey, we're not, you, we don't know all the answers, but that's okay. And so we use the phrase, we talk about maximizing risk, but the inverse of that is saying, we're actually focused on the experiment and the outcome of the experiments. That makes it a little more interesting. In a way that like you're no longer saying like hey if this doesn't work you are a failure we're saying we don't know if this is going to work but let's go give it like the best shot we can and then as the company scales it's really about i would say listening and and spending a lot of time part of it is like the relationship that each of us as individual investment partners has with the founder ceos we work with where we can say hey like you know that was hard we should talk about it um you know another piece that we really emphasize is kind of access to other founders in our network today 
call 160 active companies, 208 founders, and so we spend a lot of time connecting them both with existing companies that look like them and then other companies that are at the same stage. And I think that just helps you to pick your head up and be part of something a little bit bigger. Yeah, and, so, and then the last piece, the last piece is really, it's is capital, um, which, you know, in the beginning, being able to say, hey, we're in, let's go do this. There's certainty to that, which, you know, creates, which creates comfort. Um, and then having the ability to continue to invest as the company grows and is successful, I think is, again, um, you know, something that creates a little more, creates a little more safety um, versus saying, hey, like, here's some money, go figure it out. Um, a, a different question you asked within the previous question was like, hey, where do you find the next stuff? I think it's cool to watch. And I think what's, what's interesting about the bio, like the molecular experience, around the time we made that investment, we said, hey, like, where are all the spaces, these people, where the kind of new founders are spending time? And at the time it was uh, QB3, which is still true today. QB3 is this amazing pool of like great companies that are starting out and have you know, small, small budgets. Um, and then there was this place called Berkeley Biolabs, which uh, I went over there to meet them, Ryan and Ron, who you may know. And I was like, hey, this is neat. Like you guys are like, you know, people just tinkering on things with biology. And you know, we've done, you know, we're investing before. And so like the MakerBot company was out of the bot cave back when we invested. And so we'd seen kind of the hardware equivalent and we said hey there's this cool kind of biology biohacking space equivalent and they said hey you should come back next week we're going to do this thing uh with uh, this individual named arvind and we do this indie bio thing and so you know we were fortunate to like, kind of see the beginning of indie bio and i think what's interesting is like venture capital like our we have two customers like part of our product is to our limited partners who are mostly nonprofits, you know foundations uh groups that have to do important work and they would like us to have, you know, consistent outperformance in our particular um, strategy. It helps them, you know, run their business. And so, um, you know, each fund has a different strategy, and then that has to marry on to how innovation is happening. And so, at some level, you know, each fund may not actually be a great fit for all types of companies. I do think what is happening here is that there are increasing the lower costs on things like sequencing around go-to-market around um, shared tools are enabling more individuals to start tinkering earlier in different ways before because the costs are lower then able to say hey i want to go and like start a company doing uh, vegan melted cheese um, using some cool sort of symbology application or i want to go do uh, you know plant-based meat or i want to go do uh, skin care like somewhat like crazy thing um, that like if you're right or like big and impactful but like are different. And so if you are in a world where you needed to raise, you know, $50 million to open a lab, and you know that you're regular, like you just get to product markets and take another hundred million dollars, like you're kind of constrained in terms of all the other stuff. And by bringing down the cost initially, you're going to see more stuff early, which then will bring in more capital. And so what I get most excited by is like, there's all this cool innovation at the edge in terms of like how to finance these things. And so like, you know, Indie Bio is this really interesting experiment where, you know, we worked with them really early on. We were a partner for them early in kind of batches two, three, four, and five when they started investing 200K in all the companies to say like, hey, look, what happens when you flip the model and say, here's 200K, go figure it out. Like, can you accelerate some innovation? And the answer is not in all types of companies, but there are a whole new, all, all tons of markets that open up when you start to, to think differently. Um, you know, I think similar thing, like you all are enabling a similar type of thing where like there are now a whole new group that look like you that are smaller funds doing types of things backing different types of founders. And so as there's more access points to starting companies, I think that to me gets really exciting because there are more people who are starting companies who are coming from different backgrounds and different perspectives, 
who have these ambitious ideas that maybe they only have um, in their own particular flavor to it and just need 250K, 500K to get to that first milestone to come to us and say, hey, I need $2 million to get that next milestone. And then at that point, it looks like a real business that people should fund. Um, traditional capital sources will come in. Like that to me gets me really excited because I think what's happening now is you're seeing all over. If a company in Paris developing a consumer product using Sin Bio, um, like that's, uh, it's wild to me. And they're in a, a shared lab space with, you know, a number of other companies um, that are all doing kind of similar things and taking kind of ambitious ideas, you know, not like transferring stuff out of labs, just saying, hey, this is an idea we want to go tackle, you know, enough, you know, we have a background in synthetic, synthetic biology to do it. Like that to me is really exciting because when you, when you start to, when you start to remove capital as the gating factor and really empower people to do the things they want to go do, like magic happens. The other part of that question was, when you talk kind of about your, your founder focus at True, I'm curious kind of, uh, when you talk about macro environment, kind of the direction and speed of the winds, we're in COVID now. Uh, that's an era we'll probably be in for the next maybe 12 to 18 months. Um, do you see kind of that founder focus uh, play in with the macro environment sometimes? How does that kind of twine? Yeah, I think it, so at, at a meta level, um, a thing I like, a thing I recently said to our analysts is that we um, are the best risk we take is market timing. You know, because of our fund structure, because of how we view the world, I think what we find is like great founders who have ambitious ideas and you're like, that are just like riding two or three big trends. And you're like, over some period of time, this will work. And I just don't know how big or how long it will take. Um, and sometimes it is big and works. And I would say what's been interesting about kind of the COVID environment is that many of those trends have actually brought, I would say, accelerated growth five to 10 years in a way that is uh, remarkable. And we probably won't keep all those acceleration, but uh, I think a lot of people won't go back. And so that's things like health ownership. And so part of that would be like, you know, things like telemedicine or, um, you know, medical probiotic, like, you know, in a world where people are thinking about their health more, they're going to be more open to trying new products and taking more ownership of their health. That accelerates many of the things we think about. You know, another one I think about a lot is kind of direct to consumer business models. You know, I think it is underestimated the shift in how it works where, um, you know, we were in a number of kind of early hardware companies that sold by e-commerce and it used to be really hard to set up an e-commerce website. Took many engineers and Shopify was considered a tool, like a small, like a toy. And so at some level, like the ability to build like a, da a, custom, a customer data model that has the customer at the center and then build a business around that person with like, you know, ongoing retention and uh, expansion revenue is like relatively recent phenomena or it doesn't cost as much money now. And so now more people can go and do it. Um, and then, and that's always been kind of the goal. Uh, and now, you know, the shift, the demand we've seen on the other side is incredible because people are spending more time at home and more willing to experiment or are required to buy things at home. You know, we're investors in a company called Madison Reed, uh, which sells kind of better for you hair, hair products online. Um, you know, people can't go on now to get hair color. And so people who I'd imagine were never thinking about buying hair color online or would be scared to do it, now are trying it and I would say likely never go back. Adam, always a highlight to chat with you. Thank you, my friend, for coming on the show. Thanks, Chaz. Thanks for having me, guys. This was fun. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.